Hello, my name's Gregory Wilker. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Live with Greg. Today is November 17th, 2019, and last night I learned that my podcast had way exceeded the resources I have to keep it alive as a video podcast. So I am actively working to move it to an audio podcast. The video is still available on my website, gregorywoker.com, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Live with Greg. Thanks for your support. Right, so what's up, man? So um, here with Donald Lacey. Yes, um, I wanted to talk with you about race. Um, so I'm obviously white. You are. A lot of people think yeah, I guess so. You, are. <laughs> <laughs> you could be hella light skinned, but that's another story. But anyway, I got a joke about yeah, that. Yeah, really. Yeah. You could be. It's true. Actually, my. Great, great, great grandmother is. She looks white as you, yeah, on my father's side, and he's he was very he was dark as that camera. So you know, I think I mean this race to me is a a, a misconception. There really is only one race, the human race. So we we make all these different uh, delineations based on skin color hair texture, eye color, and it's really just a, a, a fabricated notion as a result of white male supremacy that this country is dictated by, and it's really just designed to keep people apart, to keep people feuding, to keep people, because, you know, it's a big business, hate business, it's a money-making business, you know, so, you know, that's my uh, rudimentary analysis of racism in America. All right, so let me ask you this. Do you think that it is as consciously organized as when I hear that the recent shooting of the gentleman in the back by yeah, the, South Carolina, yeah. Was that where it was? Yeah. That that was a hoax. Um, and I heard that on an interview with Dick Gregory. Said that it was a hoax, that the guy didn't really get shot? Yes. Oh, I haven't heard that. As far as I know, and his families, I've seen them on TV, and then sometimes Dick Gregory comes out, and I love Dick Gregory. <laughs> sometimes Dick Gregory comes out with some way out stuff. Um, as far as I know, it really happened. I mean, I can only go by what his family says, and I've seen his family on television saying that he's dead. So, and we're talking about the guy that ran from the police officer. Yeah, in the green shirt. Yeah, yeah, and they That's shot him. That's one of the things... Dick Gregory said, how can you shoot a guy four times in the back with a green shirt and there's no red blood showing up in the photos? I don't know. I, I don't know anything about that. I'm gonna. This is the first time I've been hearing that it was a hoax. I'll have to do some more research. And, you know, I've talked to Greg Gregory in person several times over the years, going all the way back to 1981 when he rightfully uncovered the Atlanta child murders, what was really going on with that. And he brought... He did a presentation to San Francisco State. I was a student at the time. And he presented slide evidence that showed how some of the kids had had injection marks in the middle of their back where it's impossible for you to self-inject yourself. Some of their penises have been clipped, and he maintained. And I believe he's correct in this assumption that the kids were being murdered to 
uh, used for uh, medical experimentation by the CDC, which they found uh, interferon is a drug that retards cancer cells. It's allegedly half a million, million dollars a pint or whatever. But they found out the best way to synthesize interferon was through the white blood cells of young black males. And he was saying that's what the Atlanta child murders was all about. Uh, what uh, what is CDC? I don't know. Uh, Center for Disease Control, okay. which is in Atlanta, Georgia, by okay. the way. All right. Yeah. So, all right. So here's the thing. It starts becoming for me like Alice in Wonderland. Like, where does this rat hole end? Like, it's just so you get into the 9/11 chaos and all this. You know, like I wonder if there's an element of we as human beings start convoluting facts to fit these assumptions we have. Oh, I'm, I'm sure there's some of that. And, you know, while some people may say I'm a conspiracy theorist, I tend to err on the side of things that research will bear out. Uh, for instance, the Kennedy assassination, anybody that thinks that it's possible for one man to have shot him from the angle he shot with a rifle that didn't work to get off uh, a kill shot in six seconds. He shot, got off allegedly three shots. And so much evidence supports, you know, the magic bullet theory. They they really believe that this bullet went through Connolly and Kennedy two and three times and then did a, a U-turn, right? No, I mean, come on. That's okay. that's. I mean, so for anybody to suggest that someone other than Oswald killed Kennedy to be labeled a conspiracy theorist to me makes no sense because the facts support the fact that there was more than one shooter. I mean, how can you have a bullet zigzag and go make seven wounds and then come out pristine? It's not possible. Uh, physics suggests that that's not possible. So. You know, people who are labeled conspiracy theorists who believe that there was more than one government, to me, are conspiracy theorists. If anything, they're supported by the scientific empirical evidence that this bullet couldn't have done all of it. And that was the basis of the Warren Commission's report, that this one bullet made seven wounds in Kennedy and Connolly. So that's not... I mean, while theoretically it could be possible, yeah, the odds are 20 trillion to right. one that that happened. All right. So back to me, like, because I could spin off on that a long time, but it doesn't come back to the basis of living in peace. Sure. And how do we do that? Well, I wish I knew that answer, Brother Gregory. We, I would, believe me, I would put it on 24 hours a day. And the realist side of me says that we may never. But as opposed to necessarily ascribing to that panacea altruistic thing maybe the easier goal would be to just exist in civility if we can just be civil about whatever the discourse is instead of you know shooting somebody because uh, they're uh, uh, doing abortions for women or blowing up a clinic that's barbaric or shooting somebody because you know uh, they may prescribe to a certain philosophy so if we can just, we're going to always argue, but can we be civil in our discourse? That's my thing. I think that's an easier goal for us as erratic human beings that we are to ascribe to, rather than this, you know, panacea world where everybody's hunky-dory and singing we are the world. I don't think that will ever happen. But I think as so-called civilized human beings, we should be able to get to uh, uh, 
a, a discussion, not an argument. I don't even waste time arguing with people anymore. Why should I have get argued and get all worked up with somebody who, not to say that I'm right all the time, but usually if you're arguing over something, you're not you're upset because you're not that sure of your facts. To me, if you're sure of your facts, what do you have to get upset about? Yeah. I've heard a couple of your interviews, and you seem very open and supportive in your interview process. And I'm wondering, do you like sometimes hear someone and go, oh my God, that's just chaos, but why even go there? Why challenge them on that? Well, it depends. If somebody says something that I feel is uh, totally incorrect, number one, I will not hesitate to correct it. But if it's opinion and if it's going to just open up a can of worms, it's just going to not necessarily come to some kind of conclusion, I'll let it go. But very seldom. If someone says something that I'm interviewing, and, and usually, you know, most people that I do interview on the program have a left of center point of view, which is fine. I mean, I've had some right wing people on the show and to me, that's good radio for me to intellectually challenge their position. But most of those people refuse to come on my show because most of them don't stand on a leg of truth or fact. You know, I don't prescribe to know the truth and know everything, but there are some things I do know, and there are some things that I believe to be true. You know, and if you're uh, distorting the truth and misrepresenting the facts, and you come on with me, you're not going to have a leg to stand on, trust. Alright, so one of the interviews, the first interview I heard that um, was the doctor woman that was on your show and she was talking about white supremacy. Oh, Francis Chris Wilson. Yeah. And she yeah, talked about nice. sports. Yeah. And like I was with her and it all made sense, but then she went off about like the size and color of balls and how that was proof of this white supremacy. Well, I mean, you could argue that, I assume, but to me that's the, the mustard and not the hot dog. The hot dog argument is yeah. that this 1% of white males set up this false myth of white male supremacy and built this whole country on that. Now, that's irrefutable. And every statistic in terms of the high black incarceration rate, uh, high incarceration of black males, everything is supported by that theory. And her theory that when white males, Europeans, begin to travel the globe, they notice that 86% of the world had some type of color. Then she says this caused them inwardly to feel inferior because they lacked what the majority of the people in the world had, which makes common sense. When they started to travel, the first thing they noticed is, hey, these guys got color in their skin. How come we don't have it? And everywhere they went, people had color in their skin. And they were the only race or sub-race of people who didn't have this. So according to her, this is her theory, that they inwardly felt inferior. So to offset that feeling, they set up a system that was totally unequal based in favor of those who had the absence of color. And if you think about it, logically it makes sense. If I'm feeling inferior about something, if I uh, you know, feel like my, my sexual prowess isn't enough, I'm going to take extends or Viagra to make me feel, to uh, you know, uh, make up for that deficiency. So by that uh, rationale, I think her theory makes a lot of sense. You know, the other stuff, the balls, big boys, even though it is true, for the most part, other than Tiger Woods and a few, golf is pretty much a white man's game, pretty much, and has been historically. Now, in the last 15 years, because of Tiger Woods, that has changed dramatically. But prior to him, you could count on one or one hand, Lee Elder, uh, 
maybe two or three black men who were on the PGA Tour. All right, but I think that's more of an uh, economics. Now, obviously, when you talk economics, you're going to talk about privilege. But I think it's more like to play golf, you have to have money. True. To play tennis, you have to have money. True. But by the same token, a lot of those clubs, even if you have money, regardless of what you have, wouldn't let you in. I mean, Augusta National has been for years one of the hotbeds of, of, of racism. I think Lee Elder, was it in 75, I want to say? I don't remember the year. He was the first black person to set foot that wasn't carrying the golf clubs. So, yeah, it is a, a, a sport that you have to have money, but even if you had money back in the day, I don't care what how much money you had, they weren't going to let your black ass on the golf course unless you was carrying clubs. I mean, even now, you know, they don't want to let women in the club. I think Condoleezza Rice, who is questionable in her politics, to say the least, is one of the few women who belongs to Augusta National. There may have been one or two more. She was the first, I know, and that was recently, five, six however many years ago. So you have all these bastions. People don't realize even the San Francisco Olympic Club wasn't integrated until 1989. And that was a gentleman by the name of Roy Clay who I've had on this program. Even people like Willie Brown, who had money, wasn't admitted until the San Francisco. He later became the mayor. But before he became mayor, he wasn't admitted to the San Francisco Olympic Club. There were no black members. So you have all these steel bastions of white male Exclusivity that still exists. There's, I'm sure there's still places around this country today where they won't let a black person or a person of color near them. So, you know, you could argue, yes, uh, money, but, you know, again, they weren't letting black folk in there. All right, let me. Um, I went and saw Reverend Farrakhan speak when he was here probably about 20 years ago. My experience is that he was a very peaceful person, seemed very honest. The friend I went with well said, well, you know, that's who he is publicly. But you get behind doors and it's, you know, the Jews this and the white devil and all that. Do you think there's bastions of areas where I wouldn't be welcome? In the nation of Islam? Or in the United States. You know, like, so Nation of Islam is a United States organization. Maybe by, let's say if it was an area, but again, these people that would, wouldn't welcome you, they don't necessarily have the power to keep you out. Do you follow what I'm saying? So if you go into an all-black neighborhood where not too many white people go and they saw you, they might not welcome you, but they're not sanctioned by the laws and the power of the society to keep you out. So there's they no may physically try to remove you, but there's no law or no power structure in place to make them remove you, you see. So that would that would be the difference. Right. And in terms of Farrakhan, I, you know, and this has come out with those Sony emails, everybody is different behind closed doors. I've met Farrakhan, I had an in-depth one, well there were other members of the nation, but me and him this close, and my uh, take on him was that he's a man, a true man of God. He's a true man that believes in what he said. Now, a lot of things he said has been taken. What he said, that quote where they labeled him the, the anti-Semite, when he said any religion 
referring to Israel that murders innocent people like the Palestinian, uh, the Palestinians in the occupied territory, dropping bombs and murdering innocent men, women, and children, and uses religion to do that is a gutter religion. But the quote you heard him say was that Israel is a gutter religion. So when you take it out of context, yeah, it sounds like he's anti-Semitic. But what he said, if Israeli is killing innocent men, women, and children in occupied territories and using religion to justify that murder, then it's a gutter religion. And that's true. I agree with that. Yeah. So, you know, there's not too many black leaders that I would go to bat for these days. You know, the Jesse Jacksons and the Sharptons, whatever. You can throw them in a bag as far as I'm concerned. But I will, until I'm proven otherwise, uh, stand behind the mist. Do you know much about the Malcolm X scene? And that? I do know about that. And he has admitted what he has admitted publicly and he apologized to his daughter on 60 Minutes. I don't know if you saw that. It's on YouTube. You can Google it. And what he admitted to was contributing to the climate that led to his assassination. In other words, when Malcolm exposed Elijah Muhammad for some of his indiscretions with some of the women and he began to speak vocally about it, Farrakhan and the others saying, hey, you know, uh, you turned against a minute or you're a traitor. Death to those who betrayed it. And so he, he admitted to putting out that rhetoric that contributed to the climate. And he didn't admit to ordering the hit or hitting him or anything like that. But he did. And I give him credit for years later to facing his daughter, his oldest daughter, Ayatollah, I think it's Shabazz is her name, Ayala, but whatever her name is. On And you can Google it. It's on YouTube. And admitting to falsely putting out statements about by all accounts from everybody even those who disliked him said that he was one of the more morally upstanding people, Malcolm X I'm referring to people that ever lived he didn't cheat on his wife, he didn't do this and that's why he was so taken aback when he found out that uh, uh, Elijah Muhammad had fathered all these children out of wedlock with all these different women who worked for the nation and he was morally offended by that because he said, how can we represent ourselves as these morally upstanding people? And then this guy's got six or seven babies or however many it was by all these different women. So. I imagine, too, that there was an element of him looking up to Elijah Muhammad. Absolutely. So he like was crushed by that, right. as is depicted in Spike Lee's movie. Right. Right. He was crushed yeah. by that. And, you know, it's, it's just too bad that he had to be taken out like that. And, uh, you know, because he, to me, was one of the more... Uh, powerful, poignant, honest, morally upstanding black leaders that this country has ever seen. There's been quite a few, from Edgar Evers to, you know, you can name a lot of them. But Malcolm X has always been one of my favorites, and I just hate that he and the Nation of Islam had to have that friction, you know, whatever it was. I mean, you could say, you know, for me, I don't judge anybody by their personal life, including Elijah Muhammad. To me, that doesn't, because he was sleeping with women, that doesn't denigrate all the good he did of taking all these guys who have been career criminals and turning them into outstanding citizens who never go back to jail. One of the highest rates of... Uh, or, or the lowest rates of recidivism is men who are former felons who joined the nation of Islam. So he did a lot right. He took a lot of cats that nobody would even deal with and make them successful businessmen and on and on and on. So Yes, yes. I mean, and that's what I see with the nation of Islam is it's pr predominantly saying to people in abject poverty, you have value. Absolutely. You have meaning and you can do well. And... and, and 
you know, again, working with people who have been incarcerated and, you know, may have even committed murders or whatever they did and done 20 years. Uh, I've seen with my own eyes because I'm not a member, but I'm strongly affiliated with Minister Muhammad's mosque in Oakland. He's one of the great young leaders. Brother's probably in his early 40s. Intelligent. You know, he may be one of the heir parents to Farrakhan. Who knows? I, I support that brother, and he's. I've seen the work he's done in Oakland with these families who lose loved ones to by police or otherwise. And us upright, uh, wonderful. I've had him on the radio here several times. I, in fact, I'm overdue to get him back. Actually, Minister Keith Muhammad, he does great work. They have a school over there. Uh, the, the Muhammad School over there in Oakland. Them kids come out straight A students. His son just graduated from UC Berkeley, straight A student. So, you know, hey, I'm all for people that's doing stuff to improve the quality of life for people, especially don't who are disenfranchised and spit on by the society at large. So I'm all for it. Um, I know you gotta go, so I want to wrap up, but one phantom keeps coming up. Um, right now, I'm reading the post-traumatic slavery book by, by Dr. Joy, De- Dr. Joy DeGruy. Yes, yes. and it's I'm just started, <clears throat> but it seems like she's talking to black people, like in how they can be a part of the healing. How would you say, as a Caucasian, how can I be part of the healing? Well, here's the thing. I, I, I think, and this is my theory, and this is why I do Color Struck, which you got to see if you haven't seen it already. I don't know when I'll be back in the bear. I'm going to be in L.A. with it in June. Uh, I'm going to be in San Jose State sometime in the fall, so maybe they'll get a chance to see it here. But to me, racism has messed up white folks as bad, if not worse, than black folks. So we're, we're all damaged as a result of these preconceived notions that we've been brainwashed on how to deal with people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who are whatever. So I think what she is doing is to empower black people to, first of all, and we were talking about this on the show this morning, black people, because of slavery, have the biggest problem. We live in denial. We always, we don't want to admit that we need therapy or that we're, we have any kind of traumatic disorder. But by the same token, a lot of conscientious, uh, good intending white folk like yourself, they've been damaged by this race dynamic in that all of us are forced to live with. So that's what Colorstruck does. And it's a beautiful thing. I get the best part of that show is after I do my 70 minute presentation is we discuss white, black in front of one of the most powerful discussions I've had. All of them have been great. But one that I'll never forget, we did a show in Arcata. You know where that is. All white audience. There was one black girl from, uh, what's the college up there? Uh, Humboldt State. Humboldt State. One black girl in the crowd, 99.9% all white. And the discussion lasted almost two hours. And I'll never forget this white woman, as long as I live. She was probably in her late 50s, early 60s. She was a child during the Watts riots. And she told this wonderful story that she had never confessed. And it made me realize how powerful this racial healing work that I do is. Because this has been, she'd been carrying this since 1965. This was 2009 when we did the show up there. And she told this great story of how she was a little girl, and they were in the outskirts of Watts, her father, mom, and her sister driving, and a brick, they were just on the outskirts of it, passing them wherever they were going to and fro, and a brick or something came through the window and hit her father's head. Uh, 
while they were at a stoplight or something, and he unconscious, and he was bleeding. His mother had to drive him to the hospital. So she just drove him to the nearest hospital, which happened to be in Watts, right? And it was a black doctor. And the black doctor was approaching her fire, and she was, she was seven, eight years old, and she said, don't let that N-word touch my daddy. And that bothered her her whole life. And then she confessed that, and she was crying in front of 400 strangers. And I went in and I hugged her, and I thanked her. So to me, that's what we need to do. We need to sit down, white, black, blue, brown, whatever, and talk. We never talk this shit out. So, you know, we keep sweeping this 10 billion pound elephant under the rug like we don't have a race problem because there's a so-called black man president. That doesn't do shit. I don't know if you can cuss on this thing. Absolutely. That doesn't do shit to improve... Um, race relations we have to talk Nelson Mandela understood that rest in peace when he died or excuse me when he took an office uh, in South Africa he hired some of the his former jailers to work on his police force to his own personal body he brought in the oppressed and the oppressor and they had months and months of dialogue and it got ugly it got heated it got whatever, but they realized, look, we've had hundreds of years of the minority oppressing, enslaving uh, the population that's 90% of the country. We need to talk about it. And it's the same thing here. Slavery messed this country up so far, but, you know, oh, it's okay. We passed the Emancipation Proclamation, which took years for some states to reinforce. And, oh, the Civil Rights Bill. Now we have the Voting Rights Act, which has been gutted recently, right? We don't need, Black people don't even really have a permanent voting right in this country. So... You know, there's supposedly all this so-called process, progress we got back, but we haven't talked about what the issue is. And until we sit down like intelligent people and talk about this stuff, we're not going to get any better. Listening to your show on the way here today, I was thinking that that might be it, is interracial relationships, you know, boys, girls, boys, boys, girls, girls, whatever, because... In essence of them agreeing to be lovers together, publicly open, they're going to get a lot of shit, and they're going to have to deal with that together. Absolutely. And I've always said, you know, love is colored by, you know, but some people, some black men, and I know this to be true because they're friends of mine, will only date white women because they have such, and they're usually very dark complected, they have such self-hatred that has been reinforced by the society and reinforced by every every turn since they were little kids that black is ugly, that they want to have a woman that is furthest removed from their own appearance because they have self-hate issues. So there's so many dynamics that race, institutionalized racism plays. And again, that's why I do color struggle. And again, the beauty of it is the discussion. <clears throat> In fact, the next time I do it will be part of this diversity conference that the University of California Systems, all the colleges are coming together because they've had all these hate, uh, racial hate crimes. You know, uh, the kids putting swastikas at UC Davis. That happened two or three times on the uh, fraternity. And then these fraternities doing these parties where they dress up in blackface and have gold chains and holding watermelons and, you know, all this stuff going on. So there's a race problem. Do you think we'll ever be at a place of healing where? that is humorous and not hurtful? That's a great question. And I, I use a lot of it in my show. I, I want us to laugh at some of this so we can relax. The whole point of what the way I do it with that is to get people laughing about it 
so they're relaxed enough and feel trusted enough in the environment like that lady did to tell a story that had been haunting her for 40, 50 years. And that's the beauty of it. Because, you know, again, until we sit down and talk, and it sounds like it's such a simplistic solution, but it really is that simple. We're not going to get anywhere until we sit down and talk. And the United States government makes an official apology for slavery. See, and the reason they're afraid to do that because it opens the door to the reparations discussion. Well, sorry, but we have to talk about that. Slaves built this country, and that 1% built their fortune off the backs of my ancestors. So how can you reparate reparate the Native Americans? You reparated the The Jews. You reparated the Japanese who were interned in prison camp. You represented the Chinese. If that's And that's great. I'm not saying they deserve that. But why not even a discussion about the people's reparations who built this country? Were the Indians really represented? Well, they've been reparated in the terms of some land give backs to some tribes as well as the casinos and that kind of thing. So okay. you could argue that was a form of reparation. Okay. But people don't even want to mention that word when it comes to black folks. That's a bad, even black folks. And I talk about it in the show, and I can see some of the people in the audience, oh, you know, because it's a scary thing to some people. But there's a great book written by a white scholar, Douglas Blackman, and I've had him on the show, called Slavery by Another Name. And he breaks it down. He, it's such, it took him years of research and finding all these letters from, and what it basically talks about after the Emancipation Proclamation up until the 1950s, there was still unofficial slavery. There were black people who were put in work camps Right, away from their family, no contact with the family. You'd be standing like I'll be standing out here in the visit there, and the police say, "Hey, boy, what you doing?" Nothing. I'm just standing. Come on, arrest you, not even contact your family. Next thing you know, you're in some work camp, uh, busting rocks or pulling cotton or doing whatever. And this way, and he and he documents a great book, Slavery by Another Name. I got to get him back on Douglas Blackman. Read that one. But he chronicles that the unofficial branch of slavery during the whole Industrial Revolution in the early 1900s and all of that, there was still slavery going on. It wasn't called slavery, but for all intents and purposes, that's what it was. Is it too much to address slavery that's happening right now in other parts of the world? No. There's still chattel slavery everywhere. I mean, even in China, they they need to be shamed of themselves, the so-called industrialized China. I mean, I even feel bad for using a Mac. I don't have a Mac, but those... You've seen those stories about those kids they got in there. As part of their college education, they lock them up in those big huge... Some kids have jumped out of those buildings, and they're in there for hours and hours. They have to do so many hours a week. I forget. I had somebody on years ago about this. They have to do so many hours a week building these micro-technologies and all this. You won't get your college degree unless you do. And there's basically, you know... Who's the guy that died from uh, Apple, Steve Jobs, and all? This is their shit, man. And it's it's slavery. And they're making trillions and billions of dollars off this crap. And people are losing limbs and shit in there. They don't have any health insurance. And they're mostly young people. And I don't know much about that. And I've heard some, like, reports that it was falsified. 
But I know for sure the mining in the Congo for those minerals that go into the computers, and those are you know nine, ten, eleven year old kids. Absolutely, I know you've had like in that movie Blood Diamond with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, right. which is based on some. That's a fictional movie, but it's based on some real shit. You know, they train them kids from early. They take them from their yeah. families, yeah. train them to be soldiers to you know uh, enslave people in the mines and get those diamonds and minerals. That's been going on for hundreds and hundreds. Of years so so that kind of brings us back to the beginning where you were saying I don't think we'll ever have that lovey-dovey scenario hey, in man, humanity as long as we can just be civil to me I think that's a that's lower hanging fruit that we can reach just be civil we ain't gotta agree we ain't even gotta necessarily like each other but civil discourse that's my thing you know cause to kill people over an idea or even hurt them Again, uh, yeah, I mean, just like these yeah. those cartoonists, I didn't agree with that shit making Muhammad look like whatever they did or whatever. That was, you know, that you could argue that was blasphemous, but that's not nothing to die over. You're gonna kill somebody because you don't like? I mean, sure, it may have been poor taste. Yeah, I'll I'll give you that. But we can't be killing people because we don't agree with something we think is important. I mean, that's the whole problem, especially in America. There is no discourse. The right wing and Fox News and the Tea Party, they're all so ultra inflammatory. Everything they do is to inflame and flame and flame and make the discourse for people who aren't educated and they watch Fox News. They think that, you know, every black person is out to kill them and rape their wife and all that, because that's pretty much what they're pushing. Fear. Fear these black people. Fear these immigrants. You know, every these immigrants are coming over here and they're murdering and taking your jobs. And you got these mostly uneducated people that watch that channel. They're, you know, and there's some racist rednecks that watch it too. But then you got a lot of uneducated people who take that crap. You know, and they're so fucked up. I was watching Sean Hannity and they were trying to say, um, who were they trying to knock down? I, get, I don't remember if it was Sharpton or, or no, it was Obama. And they were saying, how can you, because they're always, Obama's the worst. And I don't yeah. agree with a lot of shit he does, but they make him like he's to the right of Attila the Hunt. Yes. So give me a break. But they were trying to say, how can you support somebody? And the week after 9 11, uh, and then they showed the Jeremiah right. God damn America when he was saying damn America for killing black folk and doing all this stuff, right? But they just showed him saying God damn America if you knew. and they said and they were saying this is a week after nine eleven and then they're so stupid under the the heading it said two thousand three. So this was two years after nine eleven. You freaking asshole! But see the dummies and the right wingers they oh yeah a week after nine eleven Obama was in that church and that guy was saying damn America. After thousands of Americans died in this, you know, thing. All right, so that, I think we as people, like part of our um, low-line line fruit is to recognize we like drama. It's true. And, um, I, when I was at SF State, SFSU, um, I was a freshman. You and, went to state too. Yeah. Go Gators. I'm a state grad. All right. All right. And here we are. You yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're a farmer. <laughs> wow. Hilarious. <laughs> Who was the principal when you were there? Um was it uh the black dude with the Jerry Curl? He was the um, What's his name? He was the counselor was the for dean. men. He was the dean of uh, men. What was that dude that he had a Jerry uh, Curl? I you forget know what I'm talking him, about. Yeah. Was, he uh, looked like um was, like was David Chappelle played. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, yeah, Prince. Prince, yeah. Yeah, he did. Actually, was Rattle there? 
Remember Ratto? He became a city councilman. He tried to kick me out of the school because I wrote an article on race in the newspaper when I was a junior. Really? Yeah. Ratto. And he got in my face one day. And you remember? Because I said they were racist, and they were. And, uh... Larry Ratto, I want to say, was his name. He became know. a Hayward City Council. So, Larry Ratto, if you see this, <laughs> fuck you, asshole. <laughs> yeah. There's some peaceful discourse. Yeah, there. there it is. How's that? <laughs> fuck you, asshole. And I'm saying it peacefully with a smile. <laughs> fuck you, Larry Ratto. Oh, Hilarious. That is funny. What I was going to say is I got into women's studies because I, I needed oh. credits and all the classes were filled up. I was a freshman. I'm just trying to find a class that'll make my GE. I wish I had thought of that. What a great place to be chicks. You know what was cool <laughs> is it introduced me to Bell Hooks. Oh, I and love When Bell I read Hooks. Bell Hooks, I was like, whoa, now I, this, I understood. Like, this right. made sense to me, being marginalized and all this stuff and all the train of thought that goes into that. And I had an affinity to what she was saying. And so I started taking more women's uh, studies courses. Absolutely. But at a point, like my junior year, the dramatics got to be too much. Like I will never forget that we had a teacher from India, and this woman in the class said, well, you know, picnic is um, racist and from slavery, and it means, you know, pick and... Yeah. Megan, right. and and the teacher's going, oh really? Which I didn't by the know way that. is kind of like an urban legend. Right, that's what that is. That's but. what. Right, I found out like it's, it's kind of like I was like, what got me is the teacher's like, oh really? I didn't know that. And it was like this whole bandwagon of chaos. Mm-hmm. And there I am, a white boy sitting there listening to this. I'm male. I'm white. I mean, I'm in the fire, right? Yeah. And then it turned out, like you said, to not really be true. Right. And I just feel like there's this, we as humans, it doesn't matter what color you are, we like lighting fires and watching the drama. Absolutely. That's why people like, that's why, you know, people think the NFL is the number one sport in this country. You know what it is? NASCAR. Really? Yeah. And people, I, I maintain, people don't go to watch people go around. They go to watch a wreck. Let's face it. Come on. Why else would you go? And sure, there's people, I don't know that much. And if you met car fans watching this, forgive me for being ignorant about your little cracker sport. But, I mean, really, what is that? I don't get it. It's like a train wreck. We like to see a train wreck. Or even an accident. That used to drive my father crazy when there'd be an accident and you see people going slow. It's not because they can't move, but everybody's like, oh, the looky-loose. And that's just part of our human nature. It's something about the drama, as you say, and the, the tragedy that some weird part of our psyche from I don't know where it comes from is a it's an alluring thing to us, you know. It's almost like they say that saying, misery loves company and for some reason in the human nature, I don't know what that is. We, you know, it's like the, the, the comics used to say, you could kill in front of 10,000 at the Coliseum, but if you bomb in a closet on Ella Street, more people will hear about that than the 10,000. Yes. And that's true, and that's just the way it is. But I think it's even like as artists, don't you think it's also true? You could be in a Coliseum of 10,000, you see the one person yawn, you're killing with the other 9,900. You see the one person yawn, and that's the one that haunts you. You know, I used to be like that, but I'm at a point now, just like last night, everybody in the crowd was killing that one lady. She was sitting there the whole time, and then finally I did this joke about cocaine or something, and I just saw her make this face, and that's why I had to 
you know, I didn't really fuck with her too hard. No, no, but I just had to let her know, bitch, I've seen you the whole 50 minutes. Everybody's dying laughing, and you're sitting there with a stick up in your ass. So I just wanted to call her out on her bullshit. Because whatever it was, it wasn't me. So I don't, I don't, you know, if 99% of the people are laughing, you know, oh, well, that's your issue, not mine. Well, what I saw last night, now I was sitting in the back, so I didn't see her face. But I saw her... Relax a bit. Yeah, you know, I saw her break up a little bit. Like she was, she yeah, wasn't. Yeah, really yeah. That's why I had to get her, man, because yeah. she was just she was putting out this whole. I mean, she, like I said, she's going through something. God bless her, and, they, and then that's like that at every show. Somebody in there is going through something, and usually they come to escape whatever that is. But for whatever reason, and who knows, I'll never maybe see the woman again in life. She couldn't escape for whatever reason. So that's fine. No, it doesn't bother me at all. All right. Well, um, I want to respect your time. Is there anything you, that I didn't bring up you'd like to say? Or? Well, uh, I've got that uh, cure for racism and cancer. Just give me a call. No, no. <laughs> no in the prostate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the line. I'm going to go get my prostate milked. Boy, the boy, she's right about that because I don't even wipe my ass good. I'm scared to stick my finger in my booty. What we're talking about, I had an expert on saying that men need to, you know, get in touch with their prostate. It's like your G spot, man. And don't think that you'll become like a raving homosexual if you stick a finger and play with your booty. All right. You know, we went from curing racism to sticking fingers up an ass. I'd say this conversation has devolved nicely. Yeah! So, man, in order to cure race, you gotta milk your prostate. Hey, thanks, man. Keep up the great work. Keep watching right here. Wilker got it going on. And his son is the coolest. And by the way, big ups to your son. What's his name? Jonah. Jonah. All right, man. I'll be looking to hear from you. Send me an email. Let me know how you're doing, player. And when I do Colorstruck again, you got to bring him. I want him. I've been working on him. I guarantee you, he will talk to you about, for hours, about the issues that it raised. Because it's very, very thought-provoking show. Yeah. Thank you very much. Right on, man. Thank you. Peace and love. Peace and love. Yes, sir, brothers. Not me.